Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. This is The Skip Bayless Show, episode 42, in honor of Jackie Robinson, who did grow up out here in the LA area, in Pasadena, before he lettered in baseball and football and basketball and track at UCLA, out here in the LA area, before, of course, he shattered the Major League Baseball color barrier. This is the unundisputed. Everything I cannot share with you during the Go for the Throat debate show that is undisputed. In episode 42, I will tell you why I believe Odell Beckham Jr. has always been way overrated and why I badly want him to sign with my Dallas Cowboys. I will tell you why Dak Prescott is now at a career crossroads this Sunday and Thanksgiving Thursday. I will tell you why I believe that LeBron James and Kevin Durant and Shannon Sharp and Dave Chappelle have all been very wrong about Kyrie's suspension. And as always, I will answer many of your questions, such as, who texted me first after the Cowboys ripped my guts out at Green Bay? And another on if I consider Skip a nickname or my true name. That's a story. And then also whether, whether or not you should approach me if you see me in public. I have a good answer for that one. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. Allow me to explain why I have never been a fan of Odell, the football player, laughably overrated, but why for the last couple of weeks I have been pounding the undisputed debate desk for my Dallas Cowboys to go sign Odell Beckham Jr. Makes perfect sense to me. Now, some background. Odell, out of LSU, as you remember, was picked 12th overall 
in the 2014 draft. He was not highly recruited out of New Orleans in high school, out of the Mannings High School, Isidore Newman. Even Tulsa offered Odell a scholarship out of high school. I mean, Tulsa, the, the king of Tulsa, Odell? I, I don't think so. But just up the road in Baton Rouge at LSU, Odell did explode onto the SEC scene as a receiver and especially as a kick returner. I take it to the house kick returner. His genetics are strong. His father, Odell Sr., played running back at LSU. While Odell's mother ran track at LSU and was a member of three national championship relay teams. She was training for the Olympic trials when she found out she was pregnant with Odell. And she later coached track. So just from an athletic standpoint, obviously, Odell was pretty blessed to have that mother and that father. By the way, he was also blessed to have his father's name to be his namesake, to inherit that name, Odell. That's a one-word name, a one-name name for a superstar athlete. It's, it's such a great, memorable name that, that fits him even better than OBJ to me, as in Odell Beckham Jr. I love the name Odell. You just hear that name, Odell. And it immediately has the ring of super cool, of star power, of aura, of mystique. Yep, Odell was blessed to have that name. And Odell took what he was born with from his mother and his father, and he worked hard. Always had a reputation for putting in that work. He turned that talent into something pretty special at LSU. He did come out a year early and at five feet, 11 inches tall by 198 pounds. Good size, but not, not huge size. He did run a 4-4-3-40, not, not blazing fast, but fast enough. And Odell could definitely make you miss. Extremely athletic, very good high school basketball player, very good youth soccer player, very good. I think he could have been a star in soccer had home run power in baseball. And so he was the third wide receiver you might remember taken in that 2014 draft. Sammy Watkins went, I thought, too high to Buffalo at number four. Mike Evans did go seventh to Tampa. That was a very good pick. Mike Evans has had a better, healthier, more dependable on and off the field career than Odell has. At least that's my opinion. And by the way, one pick after Odell went 12th to the Giants, Aaron Donald, Aaron Donald went to the, the then St. Louis Rams. Hmm. Well, would the Giants like to have a do-over on that Odell pick, I'm guessing. But Odell was blessed again. What if it had been Buffalo? What if Buffalo had taken Odell at fourth overall? Would he have been nearly the social media dynamo in Buffalo that he became in New York City? No, he would not have. 
Would Odell have been happy in Buffalo? Sorry, no. Odell was born to play in New York, then in Los Angeles, and I believe in Dallas, the Hollywood of the NFL. Sunday night, November 23rd of Odell's rookie year in New York. Odell took maybe the biggest bite out of the Big Apple that any athlete ever has with just one bite. Early in the second quarter of a solo stage Sunday night game on NBC, Odell Beckham rose up into the night at Giant Stadium and as you well remember, he one-handed, as he was falling backward, what Chris Collinsworth immediately proclaimed the greatest catch ever. 43 yards from Eli Manning. Odell was even interfered with on that play by Brandon Carr, Brandon used Carr as I used to call him. who played for my Dallas Cowboys. That is correct. Blessed again was Odell Beckham Jr. If that play had happened against, I don't know, Jacksonville or Tennessee or name somebody else, that catch would not have detonated. Detonated nationally anywhere near the magnitude that it detonated what oh my god factor it had because it came on Sunday night against America's team. The world's most valuable team. The NFL's most watched team. And on what was really the Cowboys stage on Sunday night football while playing in New York for the Giants, it just doesn't get any better than that. Odell shot like a comet across the night sky. And yet, by the way, just a quick footnote, my Cowboys would come back to actually win that football game, 31 to 28. So the greatest catch ever came in a losing cause. Yet Odell soon became the NFL's equivalent of a Harlem Globetrotter. To me, he became even bigger than the Meadowlark Lemon that I went out of my way to see every year that he came through Oklahoma City as the centerpiece for those Harlem Globetrotters. Maybe this is before your time, but look him up. Meadowlark Lemon during quote-unquote games against the same team the Globetrotters played every night, the Washington Generals. They're, they're sort of nightly make-it-look-good opponents. Meadowlark on cue would go to half court, play would stop for a moment, and he would shoot a baby hook shot, a little sort of half hook shot from half court, and he would make it on cue. Never in my life have I seen anything like that, what Meadowlark was able to do. Seventh and eighth grade at Taft Junior High School in Oklahoma City, before practice, we all used to try full hook shots from half court and it was it was an achievement just to hit the rim nobody could make one it's just impossible and metal art could just do it on cue 
we were in awe. Sports fans want, need to be awed. That was Odell. Mainly in pregame, started to awe us the way Meadowlark did during quote-unquote Globetrotter games. One of my all-time favorite movies, pretty obscure, you probably don't know it. It's a Woody Allen movie called Shadows and Fog. Last line of that movie is spoken by the magician. And he's telling Woody's character that the audience needs to believe in his magic tricks, his illusions, that, that people need those illusions, quote unquote, like they need the air. It's the last line of the movie. Cuts to black. We need to be awed by something we've never seen. And Odell, before games, began putting on Globetrotter shows, the likes of which we'd never seen before. Those shows became even better than the shows Odell could put on during games, because obviously, as Shannon Sharp and I, my debate partner on Undisputed, always go back and forth about in the end, receiver is a dependent position. You depend on the quarterback to not only choose to throw it to you, but throw you an accurate pass that you're able to catch. Without the quarterback, you're nothing. You're nobody. You're irrelevant. But uncovered before games, without two defensive backs shadowing him, Odell could make these sleight-of-hand magic trick catches, the likes of which we'd never seen before. And through the magic of viral internet video, Odell's pregame act helped skyrocket him to the top of the NFL's social media followings. As we speak, Odell Instagram 17 million. Twitter 4.3 more million. That leads Tom Brady in the NFL, who has 13 million IG and 3 million Twitter. So Odell combined is 21.3 million to Brady's 16 million. Odell before games. He's catching it one-handed. He's catching it over his head backhanded. He's catching it behind his back backhanded. He's catching it with his eyes closed. See Odell make magic no human ever had. See Odell's yellow gold hair. Never seen anything quite like that. See Odell out at night at the coolest New York hot spots. Odell dominated the pregames then the games on occasion, and then definitely he dominated the parties thereafter. Move over, Jay-Z, here came OBJ to NYC. By the way, those 2014 Giants finished 6-10 and 10 and obviously missed the playoffs, but who was counting? Odell did make the Pro Bowl that rookie year as an alternate. Seems like everybody makes the Pro Bowl as an alternate because nobody wants to go. Then, predictably, Big Apple fame went to Odell's pretty head. 
second season, he began to lose it on the field. You might remember. Sometimes he fell completely over the edge and out of control. In one game, he actually attacked his verbal sparring partner, Josh Norman, after whistles on multiple occasions. It was reported that, that Josh had provoked Odell by taunting him with gay slurs. Odell did get suspended for his actions but that seemed to make him even more magnetically, explosively popular on social media. He had edge, he had street cred, he had it all. Then of course Odell took it out on the sideline kicking net and then subsequently he apologized and knelt down and proposed to said kicking net. Odell was something, he's a gifted entertainer. He's got the knack, he's got the, the, the genius for it. He's got the instincts for it. By the way, Odell's second season, the Giants went 6-10 and 10 again. Missed the playoffs again. Ah, but in 2016, third season, Giants broke out, went 11-5. and five, And Odell got to play in his first ever playoff game. This one at Green Bay. So how did he prepare for that game on the frozen tundra in mid-January? Hmm. Odell decided to convince several of his fellow receivers on the Giants to follow him all the way to South Beach, to Miami, after the final regular season game at Washington. And Odell and some of his receivers spent the off day preparing for a game on the frozen tundra down on South Beach out on a yacht. I think it was owned by Trey Songs. Not sure about that. But somehow, magically, mystically, and naturally, a picture of Odell and Trey and others, the other receivers, on said yacht appeared on IG and spread like internet wildfire. Yep, Odell was preparing for that January 8th game on that famed frozen tundra by lounging on a yacht in South Beach. Only Odell. And I'm assuming his followers were in even further awe that he pulled that off. Go Odell, go. Then came that Sunday in Green Bay. Opening drive, Eli was playoff hot, Eli. Three for his first three. Third and five at the Green Bay 35. Sort of reminiscent of what happened last Sunday when it was fourth and three. Third and three and fourth and three at the 35 for my Cowboys. But anyway, opening drive, Giants at Green Bay. Third and five at the 35. To Odell, the pass went, and Odell cold dropped it. Hmm. Next drive. First and 10 down at the Green Bay 28. Nice throw from Eli to Odell on the back line of the end zone. Big drop. Hmm. Interesting. Giants did go ahead and kick that field goal and take a three to nothing lead, but they lost that game 38 to 13. Odell had 11 targets in that game and caught only four of them for a grand total of 28 yards. Yet when it ended, Odell made a genius move gifted entertainer is Odell. 
As he walked up the tunnel after that game with some of the media looking on, Odell used his helmet to blast a hole in the hallway wall outside the visitors' locker room at Lambeau. Naturally, the media went about as crazy over this outrageous vandalism as Odell sometimes went during games on the field. In New York on Monday, the focus wasn't so much on Odell's key early drops, but on Odell's helmet hole in the Lambeau wall. Odell's wall of defame. That's Odell. So overrated. From that day on, it was clear that the clock was ticking on Odell in New York with the Giants. You might remember the highly controversial interview that Odell did with Josina Anderson of ESPN at that point. This is October of 2018. My brother Lil Wayne told me that he was told that he was the only one being interviewed that day at a New York restaurant that had been closed down for the afternoon just for this interview. Wayne told me that Odell told him, told Wayne, that he, Odell, agreed to do the interview only because Wayne, his idol, would be there. Obviously, Wayne and Odell, both from New Orleans. I did speak to Josina about it, and she said it was all one big misunderstanding. I don't know exactly what happened and didn't happen. Whatever, Odell, excuse me, Odell appeared to be emboldened by having Wayne sitting beside him. And then Odell made the mistake at least in Giants fans' eyes, of saying how much he would love to play in Los Angeles. What prophetic words those were. Giants fans not pleased. That led to the Paris hotel room incident. You probably remember it. You probably saw the video 37 times. I don't know exactly what was going on. Odell appeared to have a blunt in his hand as he was lounging on the bed. There appeared to be white powder. There appeared to be somebody holding a credit card. It was said there was this 21-year-old quote-unquote model present. I, I, I'm not sure. Part of me wondered if Odell actually staged that scene. It, it felt kind of stagey to me just to maybe to fuel his street cred a little bit more with his edgy sort of social media magnetism. You know what happened? That video exploded all over the internet. Odell has said that he's Christian. Maybe he just strayed for a night. Not sure about any or all of the above. All I know for sure is that John Mara, the Giants co-owner, was publicly furious about that video and made it clear that video, quote, will not help, unquote, Odell's contract negotiations with the Giants. Mara said he was getting sick and tired of answering all kinds of questions about Odell. So it was no surprise that after a 5-11 season, the Giants shipped Odell to, of all places, Cleveland. It was no surprise that Cleveland's GM at the time, John Dorsey, who did draft Baker Mayfield number one overall, wanted to pair Odell and Baker, 
dual star power, along with, obviously, Jarvis Landry, who was very close to Odell when they played together at LSU. My friend Mark Anthony Green of GQ fame then did a big cover story on Odell going to Cleveland. Opening scene of that story is Odell tooling down Sunset Boulevard out here in Beverly Hills in a Rolls Royce that was Cleveland Browns orange, only Odell. Odell and Baker should have been a match made in IG heaven. Baker was the it kid at that point. He was the breakout star of all those, all those, all those progressive commercials. At home with Baker Mayfield drove me crazy because Baker, there's no way Baker was going to be able to live up to that. He'd done nothing yet to warrant. But Baker idolized Odell. Baker loved hanging socially with Odell. Baker and Odell even took a little pre-camp vacation one year. But on the field, for Baker, it was Odell from hell. Baker began forcing the ball to, to, to Odell and forcing the ball to Jarvis, and bad went to worst. Odell began running some of his own routes the way he wanted to run them, not the way they were scripted. Odell wound up having not one or two, but three different surgeries while he was a Cleveland Brown which he never wanted to be. He had no use for living in, playing in Cleveland, Ohio, wherever the hell that was. After the surgeries, Odell lost a step. Baker started losing confidence. The Browns started losing games. And Odell's father, of course, posted a, a video showing all of Baker's poor passes thrown in Odell's direction. I began showing video on Undisputed of all of Odell's drops in key moments for those Browns, all thrown to him by Baker. It, it was no coincidence that, coincidence, excuse me, that after Odell went down with an ACL tear in a game at Cincinnati in 2020, Baker took off again. He had won seven games as a raw rookie for a team that was 0-16 the game the year before, but Baker went off on a tear, 1-8 of 11, 20 touchdowns, only three interceptions, graded fourth-best quarterback in the league over those 11 games by Pro Football Focus, and, of course, he won Cleveland's first playoff game since 1994 at arch-rival Pittsburgh with a QBR scale of 0 to 100 of 91. But there's one thing I know for sure about Odell's idolaters. They will defend him. They attack Baker like piranhas in millions and millions of eyes. Odell can do no wrong. Odell is godlike. Heck, when he played in New York, his fellow NFL players voted him as high as the eighth best player in all of pro football, the eighth best. Wow, what about Devontae as in Adams or Tyreek as in Hill, Justin as in Jefferson? What, what about all those? Nope, nope, sorry. Odell was the man in everybody's eyes, even his fellow players' eyes in the NFL. 
yet on November 5th of 2021, the Cleveland Browns flat out cut Odell Beckham Jr. Just, just cold cut him. They tried to trade him. Nobody wanted Odell in that salary and that baggage. Hey, at least Carolina gave a fifth rounder that could become a fourth rounder for Baker Mayfield. But he was a free agent, was Odell, and the Saints, the Packers expressed some interest. And then swooping in at the last second was the Rams, the Rams. And Odell made a shrewd decision. Odell has just a genius sixth sense about him for marketing. He knew that slowed by injuries, surgeries, he was in no condition to live up to being somebody's savior. But the Rams had statistically the greatest receiver ever in a single season in Cooper Cup. The Rams had a very good number two receiver at that point in Robert Woods. So Odell wisely chose to sign with the Rams as their number three receiver, number three. By the way, Odell already owned a home in Beverly Hills, so he was good to go. This was Hollywood. He could be the ultimate celebrity in the ultimate celebrity town. What a launching pad that could be with the Rams. And of course, the day Odell walked in the door, Robert Woods unfortunately blew out his knee. And I guess it actually benefited Odell because he could still play in Cooper Cup shadow, but he could rise and shine much quicker in the Rams offense than being just the number three receiver. Even though over the last eight games of the season last year, Odell averaged only three catches and 34 yards a game in those final eight. But in the playoffs, as you know, as the attention intensified on Cooper Cup, double teams, triple teams, Odell got nothing but single coverage and started taking advantage. At Tampa, he caught nine balls for 113 yards. How blessed was Odell? Right place, right time. As the Rams were catching fire. He wasn't quite as lucky in the Super Bowl. He did catch two early balls. One a 17-yarder for the first score of the game, 7-0 touchdown. But as he was just running a crossing route, no contact. Unfortunately, Odell did rupture that same ACL again. Still not sure how that happened. Still, the Rams won it all. And Odell was suddenly seen as a Super Bowl catalyst. Hmm. Right place, right time. Now, even as he has turned 30 years of age, Odell is seen as a life changer, a difference maker, a final piece to the Super Bowl puzzle. Odell Beckham Jr. is hotter than ever. I, I don't even know if he can run right now. Nobody knows for sure. I do see the videos. I see the workout videos. You can do magic tricks with video these days, as you well know. I'm not sure, not sure how a team can be sure, but everybody wants Odell. I mean, everybody. I can't find anybody who doesn't want Odell. Now Odell's mystique and his aura are huger than ever. 
Seems like everybody's gonna make a bid for Odell here in the next week or two, as he's cleared to play sometime around December 1st. And so, for all my issues with Odell, as strongly as I believe he has been way overrated and often more trouble than he's worth, I have begun to campaign on Undisputed for Jerry Jones to plunge and sign Odell. Understand, I don't know Odell, other than occasionally sparring back and forth with him on social media. But I do know a lot of people who do know Odell very well. And I do believe his heart has always been in the right place. I think he has a big, basically good heart, but that his head has occasionally strayed. The truth is, my Cowboys right now need Odell. Not so much for what he can do for them on the field, but just in presence. NFL players, weirdly, are still just as much in awe of Odell as they were once upon a time of Deion Sanders, Michael Vick. Odell's in that same stratosphere, in awe. I believe my entire Cowboy locker room would leap to the conclusion that with Odell walking in that door, Super Bowl, here we come. If Jerry could land Odell, I believe that would send a message to my locker room that would be the ultimate message that this time Jerry means business, big business, Super Bowl business. Obviously, signing with Dallas would make sense for Odell because, number one, CeeDee Lamb has emerged as the no-doubt number one receiver, so Odell wouldn't have to worry about being the savior walking in the door the way he would in many other places, starting in Kansas City with no Tyreek. Obviously, CD's now coming off his greatest game as a Cowboy, 150 yards receiving at Green Bay, albeit in that loss. But number two, I've said this from the start, Odell Beckham Jr. was born to play for the Dallas Cowboys, to, to play in the palace that is Dallas, to play in the NFL's Hollywood that is Dallas, home of America's team. Now, for that privilege, for that new great stage, Odell would need to give Jerry a little bit of America's team discount. But imagine the stage that the Dallas Cowboys would provide Odell. So he played in L.A., played in New York. He, he, he just has to end his career in Dallas. It just makes too much sense. Again, his actual production to me is, is actually pretty irrelevant. If he did contribute the way he did finally in that playoff run for the Rams, that would just be gravy on that filet mignon. But the main reason to sign Odell is the psychological edge that he would provide. We got Odell and you don't. We got Micah and you don't. We got ultimate star power and you do not. Yet I have made it clear from the start that it's clear to me that Odell wants to ride the highest and hottest wave. I said that he's in the catbird seat position. Still don't know what catbird seat is, but I get what it means. But he's sitting in that catbird seat 
scoping out the scene, seeing who takes off and who does not. Now my cowboys who did not take off at Lambeau desperately need to win at Miami and versus the Giants in the quick turnaround on Thanksgiving to turn Odell's head back toward Dallas. You lose those two, you fall to six and five, and you fall right out of the Odell sweepstakes. Jerry said the other day that he has to decide whether Odell would substantively improve the Cowboys' receiving core. I don't care about that. I just know that Jerry loves him some CeeDee Lamb to death. This was Jerry's pick. It, it, it was Jerry, again, embracing a Cowboy receiver or star like a son. And I believe he will always be far more fascinated by, enamored of, ego-fueled by CD than Odell. But Jerry, I'm going to say it again, you need Odell as much for his name and his reputation as his current on-the-field value added at age 30. The playoff, I'm sorry, the players believe that, that Odell is a catalyst, a Super Bowl catalyst. They still believe he's a very big deal. So, Jerry, just send them a message. Just go ahead and do it. Send them Odell. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Let's get to your question, shall we? This is Daryl from Boston asking, was Wayne the first person to text you after the Cowboys lost to the Packers? If not, who was? Daryl. Nobody texted me after that game. Nobody. They knew better. I do not gloat text, excuse me, gloat text any of my friends, anybody in my inner circle. Never ever gloat text. And they know 
that I do not and will not accept any gloat tax from them. Not after crushing losses, they will hear from me and they have heard from me before and it has stopped completely. But I can't tell you who the first person was that I texted. That was Wayne. I immediately texted Wayne and I quote, congrats. I do not trust my coach or my quarterback with the game on the line, period, close quotes, end of text. Wayne responded with a red heart. Then he wrote, and I quote, thank you, sir. Good ass game as usual, comma, though. And I texted right back, quote, too good, unquote. And he responded with the double exclamation marks to emphasize that point. By the way, before the NFC Championship game two years ago at Lambeau, that was Brady at Rogers, Wayne joins us on Undisputed on air. And he bet me on air a case of Diet Mountain Dew that his Packers would prevail over Brady, the one man in sports I do not bet against. Wayne obviously lost that bet, and two days later, a case of Diet Dew was delivered to my door. To my door. Unlike others I bet with on air, Dwayne Michael Carter Jr. pays off. Next question. This is Soren from Monterey, California. Do you think of Skip, quote unquote, Skip as a nickname or your true name? When did you legally change it? For those who don't know this story, when my father and mother were dating, my father started calling my mother Skipper as in you're the skipper of this ship. You tell me what to do. Hey, they were just kids. I'm, I'm not even sure either one of them actually graduated from high school. I was the firstborn. So they named me John Edward Bayless II after my father, the first. But as soon as he saw me, my father said, there's my little skipper. My mother wasn't real happy at that point. She always used to tell me, rest her soul, that it took forever to get me out of her. She always said, you were so stubborn. Yep, that's me from day one. But skipper stuck from day one. Not once in my life, not once was I ever called John or John Edward by either of my parents. Not, not even when my mom was furious with me, which was pretty often, not once. As I got older, Skipper became Skip. And starting in seventh grade, when you leave your elementary school, you go to in our case, junior high school, 
where you had seven different classes. Starting then in seventh grade, every first day of school, I had to battle with all my new teachers to accept Skip as not a nickname, but as my only name. Because on the transcript, it said John Edward. As I've said before on this podcast, my father was bad to the bone, just evil. So the last thing I wanted to be associated with to carry on through life was his name. When I got to Vanderbilt, started to occur to me that Skip is a pretty silly first name. But once I started seeing it in print, as I started writing for newspapers and saw my byline, I, I actually started thinking it's, it has a pretty cool ring to it. Skip Bayless, okay. But I was still le leading two lives because all my legal documents were John Edward II. It's driving me crazy. So finally in Chicago, I think it was in 2001 when I was working for the Chicago Tribune, I did go to court and I managed to convince a judge that I needed to change my name to just skip, period, just skip Bayless, period. And he granted me the legal right to be forever skip. Thank you, mom and dad, for that. Another question comes from Vic from the aforementioned Pasadena. How many more losses do the Cowboys need to have before you throw out your NFC championship prediction? I did predict the Cowboys would at least make it to the NFC championship game for the first time since 1995, 27 years ago. Hey, I love my prediction through three quarters Sunday at Lambeau when my Cowboys were in com complete control, 28 to 14. But as I said before that game, that down the stretch, I could just see it coming. Dak Prescott would have to match magic with Aaron Bleepin' Rodgers. In fact, I did the whole top of last week's podcast about how that vampire number 12 has sucked the life out of us in so many big games, so many late clutch moments. So what happened right on cue, Aaron Rodgers scored 17 in the fourth quarter in overtime while Dak Prescott had the ball four times in the fourth quarter in overtime and scored zero goose egg, nada. Now here we go again. Dak's team opened as a two-point favorite at 8-1 Minnesota this coming Sunday. <laughs> My backup quarterbacks, Andy Dalton and <clears throat> Cooper Rush, have beaten Kirk Cousins at Minnesota each of the last two years. Dak is 4-1 lifetime against Kirk Cousins, who is now ranked 22nd in the NFL in QBR. So now back to Vic's question. The Cowboys should win at Minnesota. They should turn right around, 
beat the Giants at Jerry World on Thanksgiving. I mean, Cooper Rush beat the Giants at the Giants on Monday Night Football earlier this season. But I will admit, if the Giants do lose these next two, I'm pretty sure my prediction is kaput. I, I guess they could still pick themselves right up off the mat. <laughs> Maybe they could regroup and regather over a 10-day mini-buy. I, I guess they could win their final six to get to 12-5, and five, but <laughs> you know and I know. Three losses in a row at this point in the season would be devastating for my team and especially for my quarterback. Dak Prescott is, to me, at a career crossroads this Sunday and then Thursday. If he doesn't play well enough to win these games, these two games, I'm sorry it's going to be time for Jerry Jones to seriously start thinking about who the next Dallas Cowboy quarterback will be. I'm going to say it again. I used to love Dak Prescott, especially during his rookie year, but that was six long years ago. 2018, after the Cowboys fell to three and five, home loss, you might remember Monday Night Football to Tennessee. Yep, I threw Dak's number four jersey right into my trash. Posted that on the internet, only to be forced in short order to go retrieve that a week later when with the life-changing addition of Amari Cooper, Dak took off again. There he went. That year, Dak Prescott actually beat Russell Wilson and the Seahawks in a playoff game at Jerry World, the only playoff game Dak has won in six years. Amari Cooper got Dak paid best in the NFL money at that point, 75 million guaranteed in the first year of that contract. Amari got paid too, he got 20 million in his first go around with the Cowboys and his new deal. But now Amari is history. He's gone and so is my confidence in Rain Dakota Prescott. Now I cringe every time I see Dak in these housewives commercials, sleep number commercials because he hasn't earned them, not lately. Seriously, since that playoff game, that was Saturday, January 5th of 2019, where are the signature wins in big games against good teams for Dak Prescott? Show me, please. I can only see one last year. I'm talking about signature, the one at New England, albeit against a rookie starting quarterback in Mac Jones. Dak did throw a walk-off TD pass in a wild shootout of a game to CeeDee Lamb. But of course, Dak pulled his calf muscle as he was delivering that pass. It's, it's always something with Dak. This injury, that injury, then this one, then that one. Getting brittle in his quote-unquote older age. But that that's... All I can see last year, you know, I, I give you this. Dak Prescott can front run and stat pad with the best of them when he has the upper hand against clearly inferior teams. See Detroit and Chicago as Dak returned from his thumb injury. Other than that, 
Dak stunk on opening Sunday night against Brady at home. And then last Sunday, he stunk against Rodgers when it mattered most. I mean, Cooper Rush last year went to Minnesota in his first ever start, and he threw a late clutch TD pass to Amari to pull it out 20 to 16. That was Cooper Clutch. Now that was that was a signature win on Sunday night football. And by the way, figure me this. Dak Prescott last year was 0-5 when his team didn't run for a hundred or more yards. Yet Cooper Rush won that game at Minnesota without the team running for a hundred yards. Riddle me that, Batman. So these next two games in a four-day span are career-making or career-breaking to me when it comes to Dak Prescott. I'm sorry, but the harder I look, the less I see. And unfortunately for Dak, look at what Cooper Rush did do because the harder you look at what Cooper Rush did accomplish, the more you do see. This season, signature win in his first start this season against Cincinnati three huge clutch completions to that all in the final minute to set up that walk-off field goal. Signature win at the Giants when he clutched up big, huge drives, late third, early fourth quarter, long touchdown drives after the Giants had burst ahead 13 to six, that on Monday night football. Cooper Rush made big, big throws that easily made possible a victory over the dangerous Washington team that plays everybody to the wire. Now has won four out of its last five. And then Cooper Rush did beat the Rams handily in LA when I thought it was no small task. The Rams still thought they were the Rams at that point. That game mostly belonged to the Cowboy defense, but why has that defense played so much better for Cooper Rush than it's played for Dak Prescott? Why is that? Do they just trust Cooper more than they trust Dak? Cooper Rush made one bad throw, and he did throw his first two interceptions of the season, that against Philadelphia at Philadelphia on Sunday Night Football. But he fought right back all the way to 20 to 17 down early in the fourth quarter. And Jalen Hurts, who is my MVP so far this year, converted three straight third downs with his legs against my defense to ice that game. So you can scoff or laugh at this all you want, if you want. But I believe if Cooper Rush had played the fourth quarter at Green Bay, the Cowboys win that game. He's not as spectacular as Dak can be on occasion. But Cooper Rush's velocity is only slightly less than Dak's, if that. And Cooper Rush routinely finds more open receivers than Dak. He just has that clutch knack about him. So baseball has closers. Baseball, I mean, those contenders live and die with their closers. Go ahead, giggle, grimace if you want. But if I ran the Dallas Cowboys, I would make... Cooper Rush, my closer. Would that destroy Dak's confidence? I don't know. Maybe it would boost it. Maybe it would rebuild it. Maybe that would take some of the suffocating pressure off Dak. 
the pressure overwhelmingly fueled by the contract that he knows he doesn't deserve, by so many national TV commercials he has not earned. Cooper Rush raised the bar for Dak Prescott. Cooper Rush saved the season for my Dallas Cowboys. Cooper Rush showed what clutch, clever, consistent operating of an offense should look like. He would have closed that deal at Green Bay. Now I'm just hoping Dak effectively makes me retrieve his jersey out of the trash again. I'm hoping against hope he doesn't need a closer at Minnesota and against the Giants. I'm hoping we manage to win going away. Give me eight and three with a mini buy championship game. Here we come. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is my heart talking, not my head. Back to your questions. Ken from Virginia asked, if I were to run into you at the mall or out at a restaurant, what is the best way to get your attention and start a conversation? Ken, just walk right up and say, hey, Skip, can I get a quick pick with you? Or you could just say, hey, Skip, you, you got a second for a quick question? Now, if I'm with my wife, Ernestine, you definitely will get a big sigh and a dirty look. My time with her is limited and precious, and that time is her time in her view. But from me, you'll probably get 10 of the best minutes I know how to give you. That's just the way I'm built. Scoff if you must, but I do love you all straight from the bottom of my heart and soul. And I deeply appreciate your being interested in me and what I do. I know how hesitant I've been to approach celebrities. So I am always, Ernestine will attest, I'm an open door when I'm out in public. Quick story, one time a couple of years ago, I was waiting for Ernestine at a hair salon in Beverly Hills, and in walks Liv Tyler. Now, maybe you know her from the Lord of the Rings movies, but just me, I loved her in That Thing You Do. Written, directed, starred in by Tom Hanks about a one-hit wonder rock and roll band that failed right on the edge of superstardom. It's so real and she was so good as the girlfriend who's with the wrong guy in the band. She stole the movie to me and I so badly wanted to introduce myself and tell her just how great she was in that movie. She's sitting right there, just right next to me, Liv Tyler. But then I started to second guess myself. I started thinking, well, what if she didn't like the movie? What if she just wants to be left alone? I choked, 
I didn't say a word. I regretted it. I am always approachable, much to my wife's chagrin. Casey from Boulder, Colorado asks, do you write down your notes so that you won't forget what to say or is it a cheat sheet? Okay, good question. On Undisputed, I scribble notes that A, will have any stats that I need to glance down and seize upon to shoot holes in Shannon's argument. And B, I scribble down thoughts to help me flash memorize my arguments, even if I'm not going to look down and actually read them off the paper on live TV on Undisputed. But the podcast is very different, at least for me. For me, as you might occasionally notice, it is extremely difficult to talk for one hour straight without a road map especially on controversial topics, and I'm about to get to one. So I pretty much write down everything I'm going to say in the podcast. Even if I occasionally go off script or for large sections of a topic, I, I don't look down at all at what I've scribbled. But God was good to me in one great sense. I can write, and that's for print, and very differently for broadcast. Very different for broadcast because for broadcast it needs to be cleaner and tighter and punchier, chattier, with a quicker cadence so that it can just fly off your tongue. No complicated compound sentences in podcast writing. So for my one-hour podcast, I, I spend, I don't know, I'm probably being conservative here, six or seven hours writing, and it always amazes me just how fast I can speak all that I've written. Only once in now 42 podcasts, did, did I try just winging every topic, just wrote down a couple of keywords here and there, just wing off the top of my head and it just wasn't as good and I rambled on much longer than usual I went to about an hour and 15 minutes so I scripted it all out just so I forced my brain to lock in on a beginning a middle and an end of each topic just so I can stay on path and drive it home in the end, as I'm about to do with this final extremely controversial topic. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.
in closing, allow me to get this off my chest one more time. I delved deeply into the Kyrie situation in last week's podcast, you may remember. I qualified or maybe disqualified myself by acknowledging I am married to a Jewish woman. And I do belong to a predominantly Jewish golf club here in the Brentwood section of Los Angeles. Even though I do still attend a Methodist church in Los Angeles. My point is, and was, Kyrie cannot wait until he's been suspended and until he's about to lose his Nike shoe deal before he finally issues a written apology and then just get rubber stamped to immediately be reinstated to obviously play for the Brooklyn Nets. That's what LeBron tweeted should happen. He apologized, let him play. That's what Kevin Durant said from the start. Just let it go. That's what my debate partner Shannon Sharp said on air should happen. He apologized, it's over prompting a heated discussion with me. Again, my point was that link that Kyrie posted and endorsed and promoted is to a movie based on a book filled with dangerous Jewish hate. This was no apologize and move on kind of post. Hate crimes against Jewish people in this country are on the rise. Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots, has been sponsoring TV ads that say, stand up to Jewish hate. This no big deal link, quote unquote, that Kyrie posted came on the heels of Kanye tweeting that he was about to go DEFCON 3 on Jewish people, not DEFCON, but DEATH, D-E-A-T-H, DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. Obviously, Kanye or Ye suffered a backlash that he should have suffered, a corporate America backlash. And it certainly appeared that Kyrie was having Ye's back, supporting him by promoting a movie that backs up why black people should despise Jewish people. The, the movie says that Jewish leaders have engaged in devil worship, that the Holocaust was a lie, and that the Bible is a lie perpetrated by Jews and Christians. That's all, no big deal. Again, I believe that an evil madman in Germany in the 1940s tried to exterminate the entire Jewish race. A Jewish guy I occasionally play golf with said to me last week, Kanye has 31.8 million followers on Twitter. There are only 14 million of us in the world. So he has us outnumbered and that scares me to death said the guy I occasionally play golf with. 
that same guy said to me a couple of days ago, I think we're the only minority in the world that's treated like a majority. He just may have a point. There, there are only 7 million Jewish people in the United States. But I guess the perception is that they're so rich and so powerful that they're somehow protected against any persecution and hate crimes. Yet you should see what I see when I drive past synagogues and Jewish schools here in LA. I see lots of armed guards outside. I guess that's what bothers me the most about all this is the insensitivity shown by LeBron and then by Kevin Durant who said from the start he just wished the Nets just ignored this and moved on. And finally, the insensitivity shown in a shockingly anti-Semitic monologue delivered on Saturday Night Live by Dave Chappelle. I'll get to that more in a moment. Now, please step back with me for just a moment. I don't know anyone in the white sports media who has been more sympathetic to the black plight in America than I have been on air for, for 20 years on national TV. I have campaigned against, I have fought against racism and racist behavior in and out of sports again and again and again and again with all my heart and soul on national TV, I have fought. I come from a broken home. I was pretty much raised by a black woman in Oklahoma City named Katie Bell Henderson, who was far more of a mother and a teacher to me than my real mother ever was. When it comes to having compassion for the horrors and the atrocities that black people have suffered for centuries in this country, I ache with compassion. When I was a kid, I used to wonder why Katie Bell from Alabama by way of Chicago was always so quick to laugh at what life threw at us. What a great laugh she had. And I later realized it was because she had suffered so much that it was the only way she had learned to cope. She just laughed back at it. And I miss that laugh. Look, I'm sure that some black people, if not a lot of black people, are saying or at least thinking, hey, Rich, white Jewish people have no idea what persecution really feels like. My late great mother-in-law, Evelyn Jacobs, was definitely white and she was very Jewish, but she was never ever remotely rich. She grew up very poor, Lower East Side of Manhattan, fearing to use her real last name, Jacobs, for fear that she would not get jobs. 
black people of all people should be wary of stereotyping. To me, just me, there is no winning, that there is no point in even trying to rank the suffering of black people and Jewish people and indigenous people, also known as Native Americans and formerly known as American Indians. I did grow up in what used to be called Indian Territory, state of Oklahoma, which was the end of the Trail of Tears, in which hundreds of thousands of people, native people in this country were forcibly uprooted from their homes and forced to march, or in many cases, death march, all the way to Oklahoma. This country pretty much declared war on the people who originally occupied this land. This country and its armies killed hundreds of thousands of those people. So how do you rank that? You can't, you shouldn't even try. Which brings me to Dave Chappelle. I have always admired his genius and his courage. Such a gift. But he lost me in his Saturday Night Live monologue, which frankly did Kyrie no favors as Kyrie attempts to get reinstated. So Dave Chappelle opened with, and I will read what he said, quote, before I start tonight, I just wanted to read a brief statement that I prepared. I denounce anti-Semitism in all its forms, and I stand with my friends in the Jewish community. And that, Kanye, is how you buy yourself some time, said Dave Chappelle to open his monologue on Saturday Night Live. Oh, so that's the secret, is to issue a quote-unquote sincere apology that isn't sincere at all. I suspect that's exactly what Kyrie did. On Kyrie, in that monologue, Dave Chappelle said this. Kyrie was slow to apologize and then the list of demands to get back in their good graces got longer and longer, and this, this is where, you know, I draw the line. I know that Jewish people have been through terrible things all over the world, but you can't blame that on black Americans. You just can't. Because Kyrie Irving's black ass was nowhere near the Holocaust. In fact, He's not even certain it existed, said Dave Chappelle in his monologue on Saturday Night Live. Look, I know Dave Chappelle is a stand-up comic known for, for speaking the hilariously harsh truth. But this is where free speech becomes hate speech. This is why the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League tweeted that it was quote-unquote disturbing for NBC, and I continue to quote, not just to normalize, but to popularize anti-Semitism. 
Why does our trauma trigger applause? Asked the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. Now, I don't know. Maybe because the black audience is so much bigger than the Jewish audience? It's estimated that, I don't know, there are around 50 million black people in America to, as I said before, around 7 million Jewish people. But what really angered and and just flat out dumbfounded me about Chappelle's statement was his contention that Kyrie in particular and black people in general are the real victims here. That you can't blame what Jewish people went through in the Holocaust on black people. Say what? That is just so out of bounds wrong. Dave Chappelle, I'm, I'm pretty sure nobody is blaming the persecution Jewish people have suffered for centuries the world over on black people. Nobody. I, I am virtually sure, virtually sure, no Jewish people have ever blamed black people for, for what they've been through as Jewish people. I, I don't think that's ever happened before, but I could be wrong. So Kanye stated that he was going death, D-E-A-T-H, con, death con three on Jewish people. Kyrie then posted a link to a movie spilling over with Jewish hate and condemnation that, that certainly could encourage hate crimes against Jewish people thanks to an endorsement from Kyrie. And now Kyrie is being required to undergo some sensitivity training, an educational process involving meeting with some Jewish leaders, starting, of course, with the commissioner of the NBA, who is Jewish. I, just me? I, I think that's completely warranted and fair. Kyrie's original suspension was for at least five games. And I said, just make it 10, just to drive home the point that this is unacceptable. Yet Chappelle concludes that Kyrie's black ass was nowhere near the Holocaust. In fact, he's not even sure it existed. That for Dave Chappelle is a damning statement for Kyrie Irving that will not help his case with the NBA. This is why it, it sure sounds like Nike has cut or is about to cut all ties with Kyrie Irving. Nike isn't buying Kyrie's written apology any more than Dave Chappelle is. No, LeBron, we can't just move on from this. No, Kevin Durant, we can't just ignore this and hope it all goes away. This is serious, dangerous business. I, I certainly... I, I do not want to see Kyrie canceled from the NBA. I miss him in his rare, rare talent. But the point must be made. I'll leave you with this, just hypothetically. What if some big white star in sports or entertainment posted a link to a movie that just spewed inward racism, claimed that 
black leaders down through history had worshiped the devil, that much of slavery was, was actually an exaggeration, even an out and out lie in some cases. What if, what if that big white star had posted something like that? What would happen to that big white star? I believe he'd be ruined, finished, canceled, as he should be. But I don't know, maybe I'm just too white. Maybe I just don't get it. That's it for episode 42 in honor of Jackie Robinson. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his all pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Please remember, Undisputed every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern. The Skip Bayless Show, every week.